We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. My ex-boyfriend poured kerosene on me and lit me on fire. I was on fire for almost eight minutes. And I, I was in the hospital for over a year. I was assaulted by my husband included hair pulled, a missing necklace, and then bruises on my body that later appeared. In their lifetime, one out of three women is going to be abused, and one out of seven men. Thanks for joining us. I'm John Little. This is KRLD In-Depth. The holiday season is here, and while family gatherings are a source of joy for most of us, it can be so painful for others. Domestic violence incidents traditionally spike during this time of the year, and it leaves victims with physical and mental scars, as well as a sense of shame that can take years to overcome, if they ever do. It was just earlier this month, in DeSoto, a man was arrested for stabbing his ex-girlfriend to death. The victim's family says the suspect had been abusive during their entire relationship. Last month, in far north Dallas, Police believe a man shot and killed his girlfriend before turning the gun on himself. And unfortunately, these types of stories are just all too common. And if you ever need help, there are shelters available to victims like Brighter Tomorrows, Genesis Shelter, Mosaic Family Services, New Beginnings, and The Family Place all can help you if you're in one of these situations. At KRLD is taking a look at the stories of two women who suffered at the hands of the men they loved, how they escaped, and the message that they have for similar victims. We're also going to take a look at the problem in general. Who are the victims? Do they report the incidents? And also ways to help if a friend or loved one tells you that they're a victim. And finally, what is law enforcement doing? What are the prosecutors doing to make sure those responsible for this abuse pay for what they've done. And I'm joined now by KRLD reporter Austin York. Yeah, thanks, John. This is really an eye-opening topic. And when you kind of dive into this, you really sometimes can't believe that this type of abuse is so common, particularly for me. It came as kind of a wake-up call uh, doing this whole thing because I found that someone I knew recently had been a victim herself. It's definitely a tough issue. So let's let's start at the top. Well, a story that really impacted me was that of Danielle Townsend. Now, this is a terrifying incident, but it shows the extreme nature that some women face in dealing with their abusers. And I'm going to warn you that this can be graphic. Uh, during a fight with her ex-husband, Matthew Girth, Townsend was actually doused with kerosene and then set on fire. I was engulfed in flames. Pete said that when he showed up, it was like a movie that all he could see were hands and feet. And I was completely engulfed in flames. Once he, he said he put the jacket over me, all that was left was my, my hair matted to the back of my head and my genitals on fire. And then that's when um, another rookie, he told him to go get the um, cooler where they keep their ice water and their, their beverages, their water to drink, and um, dumped that on me. And that extinguished the flames. He said that I told him my name, that Matt Girth did this to me, 
and to um, contact my ex-husband and my dog was in my van my service animal cowboy and they retrieved him from the van I don't remember absolutely any of that all I remember is um, basically uh, a gush of water which felt like the fire hose and the, the people telling me they're here they're here and then I thought to myself well I'm fine now I don't have to do anything else because I was rolling on the ground you know stop drop and roll y'all saying what you you get taught in school um, so that's what I was trying to do roll to extinguish the flames and um, the people the neighbors were all out it was like 10 in the morning and they were all outside um, where it had happened and they rolled to me roll to us roll to us we'll, we'll put you out they had a fire hose but it wouldn't breach so I was burning on the ground laying on my back when they showed up just completely engulfed in flames and I thought to myself yay they're here I can I can let go now the the professionals are here and um, all I remember is letting go. Oh my goodness! I yeah, can't, and, I can't and, imagine. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the peach she was referring to in that was actually a Dallas fireman that she credits with saving her life. And Townsend spent over a year in Parkland uh, being treated for those burns, enduring things like skin grafts, eating through a tube in her trachea. In fact, if you listen to her speak as you just did, you can hear what sounds like an air gun going mm-hmm. off with each breath. Yeah. And that's because the, there's still a hole in her neck, unfortunately. And I think it's important to know that her assailant, Matthew Girth, as I mentioned before, was found guilty after a trial in which Townsend testified and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. It's it's so hard for her to have gone through that, but I love that she can speak about it. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that I found powerful and uh, for a woman that has gone through so much, it's amazing to see the kind of strength she has and is still able to spread a message of hope. A lot of times the other partner holds the money in the relationship and the other person can't leave because they don't have another place to go. A lot of these women do not have family here. They don't have friends because their partners have basically uh, exiled them from their resources their family because of the uh, the abusive nature of the relationship that is one of the things that they do they they get you cornered basically they hold the money over your head you can't leave where you're going to go you, all you have is me you know they they wear you down mentally they they verbally wear you down they make you feel like you're nothing they make you feel like you have nowhere to go and there is somewhere to go you're worth something don't let anybody tell you any different it doesn't matter what your background is you get up you get yourself together you leave if you have nothing on your back you would take you yourself your kids your animals whatever and you leave because there's a place you can go. It, that is so hard uh, sometimes for people to do. That is that is the hardest thing. But that that encouragement might be what somebody needs. Absolutely, and that's one of the things that I found so inspiring about her. And now, as you know, obviously not all abuse cases are as extreme as Miss Townsend's. And as we mentioned, as the to- at the top uh, during Christmas time, unfortunately, you see a lot of these reports of abuse. Family is around, lots of stress. Mm -hmm. You couple that with usually drinking a little bit more alcohol, and in some cases, you really get a recipe for bad behavior. Now, Paige Flink is the CEO of the Family Place based in Dallas, and she says for some, it becomes an issue of family stability. What we've seen and what we, through these many years that I've been doing this, is that 
if women are in a really dangerous situation, they'll come no matter what the time. Come on Christmas Eve, we've had that happen. But a lot of times, moms don't want to pull their kids out of the house, uh, you know, when they think Christmas is coming. And so it makes it really hard for some people to choose to come to a shelter. So if they're not here by mid-December, we'll see them, but it won't be until after Christmas. So a lot of you will see maybe some incidents, like you said, rise, but yet women don't seek help or the victims don't seek, seek help during this time of year in general. Yeah, you know, especially moms want their kids' lives to be normal. And so they feel so guilty anyway about what the kids witness with domestic violence. And so if they can avoid coming to a shelter that they don't know what's going to happen, how, what would happen, where would Santa Claus come? I mean, all those things that kids would have questions about the moms will try to hold it together. But when you pull together, you know, the families that, the siblings or the, you know, the family members of the abuser, that can also create more stress and, and trauma for somebody. So sometimes people will come um, in, you know, any at any time. It's just that they try not to because they want to do the best for their kids. Not recognizing that seeing their mom get beat up can be one of the worst things for a child. But still, a woman is a lot more likely to take it if she can stay and the kids can have a present under the tree. Oh, my goodness. I, I can't imagine a mom having to go through that. Exactly. Mm. And, and what I think, and this has happened to me, and uh, one of the things I think that many who don't suffer from abuse think is, we just ask ourselves and ask the victim, why don't you just leave? Yeah. I mean, that's the, yeah. that's the big question. And it, and it sounds like a reasonable one. Well, I asked Ms. Flink that very question. The most often time you hear a woman say, I need to stay, it's because I love this person. Even though they hurt me, I still love them. Or this is the father of my children, and I want my children to have a father. Or my religion won't let me leave. Or I'm terrified to leave because he told me if I left him, he would kill me. Or my culture, men are just abusive. That's just the way men are. And there's multitude of reasons why someone doesn't leave a toxic, violent relationship. But we at the Family Place try to get you to change the question and say, why is this person abusing the woman or man that he or she is supposed to love? Why? Why do they think that's okay? And so, again, those are that's a complicated question too but if we could all understand that when I when we say to a woman why don't you just leave what we do to her is we make her feel really guilty we put her in this place to say and this is when a, co a coach when I go out and speak to people if you know someone who's in a violent relationship please say to them how can I help you you don't deserve to be hurt I see these things happening to me. It must be really hard for you to talk about, but I'm here to support you. Because if I, as a friend, say to my friend, why aren't you leaving him? I've made her feel judged. She's not going to share anything more with me. And sometimes a bystander can be the reason a person is able to get out and leave. I think that's a really educational thing for all of us to know the right thing to say or the right way to ask that question. There should be no shame put in that person's lap for what they're experiencing. Absolutely. And like I said before, uh, I've done that before. And we'll talk a lot more to uh, Ms. Flink in a moment. But first, I wanted to chat with another uh, victim of uh, abuse, and this was Miss Jessica Moore. She found herself the victim of domestic violence after just two years of marriage. Her husband assaulted her back in March, and uh, she had the wherewithal to call police. 
but she found that finding justice was still an uphill battle. I had been told by victim services that the victim was contacted first. Uh, at the time, my assailant, who was my husband, had been contacted first to get his side of the story, so I was caught off guard by that. The detective seemed totally disinterested in my side of the story. Uh, I had to keep reiterating facts and details of what happened that night, and he seemed uh, very uninterested, even sending him pictures of my bruised body. At that point, he still seemed disinterested. Um, after he quote-unquote investigated the case, he sent me a two-line email stating that the case was closed um, due to insufficient evidence as to who a primary aggressor was, which in my opinion was absurd because there was two 911 calls and, uh, and evidence of bruised, you know, bruised body parts, hair that was pulled from my scalp, etc., at that point, I decided to go above the detective's head and reach out to his superior, who's a sergeant for Arlington Police Department, and pled my case to him. He reopened the case and agreed with me that something had been missed and an arrest warrant was issued and signed two weeks later, and my husband was arrested. It's, it's amazing that it took that much in this situation. Yeah, and and that's what you think, okay, the guy's been arrested, but really that doesn't mean anything unless he's tried or takes a plea deal or right. in some way pays for this thing. Right, and, right. And Moore found that that was another battle in itself. So months go by. Um, <clears throat> the DA's office has it. It's in the state's hands at this point. Um, I, I was receiving threats from my husband at the time that if charges weren't dropped, he was going to do A, B, and C to me in retaliation. Um, I proceeded to stay with stay the course. Um, he was pressing me to sign a non, an affidavit for non-prosecution, which I refused to do. Um, at that point, uh, the DA's office had it. I wasn't contacted by the DA's office for approximately three to four months after he had been arrested. I was contacted by three different assistant DAs and had to relive that story three different times because the DA's office uh, apparently um, kept reassigning the case to different assistant DAs. The third assistant DA asked me to come in and, um, and talk to me and at that time they told me that they were um, thinking about or leaning in the direction of dismissing the case based on the fact that that first detective that had investigated it had decided that he was going to close the case because he believed it was, quote-unquote, mutual combat. And so because of that, they say, if we even if we get the sergeant on the stand who reopened the case because the first officer closed it, that would kind of cancel each other out? Correct. They, they said that the first detective, who was totally disinterested in my case, was um, him testifying to the fact that he was initially going to close it based on the insufficient evidence as to a primary aggressor, that that would greatly hurt their case and they didn't feel like they would have an automatic guilty verdict from a jury. How, how complicated is yeah, that? And, and, and that's what it is, is that a lot of these women don't feel that even the justice system can can help them, even if they do reach out mm -hmm. and... Uh, her case was eventually dropped. I felt like nobody's had my back. I, I feel like not only have I been having to fight my um, soon-to-be ex-husband, 
Uh, I feel like I've been having to fight the state of Texas in order to make this individual be held accountable for his actions, and, and I'm still having to fight. In this day and age where, um, with the Me Too movement and whatnot, it, it, to me it seems like it's a no-brainer um, when you have somebody that outweighs someone else by 70 or 80 pounds and bruises are all over their body. To me it seems like a no-brainer who, who the primary aggressor was. Um, so, yeah, it's very disappointing that I'm having to keep fighting for, for justice because what I'm feeling is that there's a major injustice going on and whether it's through the DA's office or Arlington Police Department I don't feel like any woman should have to fight this hard uh, for justice. Now Moore's case uh, kind of highlights another aspect of this and then that's the prosecution of these cases. Now we've heard that many times uh, these kinds of cases never reported for several reasons but one of the biggest is that the victims don't believe in the end as I mentioned before that justice will actually be served. Now, I was able to sit down with Ellis County DA Patrick Wilson. He handles a lot of these cases, and he says there is no doubt that domestic violence incidents are very tough to prosecute. You know, the core issue there is a societal perception. And the, the perception, I think, that, that people in society have is that where there is a pre-existing relationship between two parties, in this case, it's a, it's a pre-existing, typically an intimate relationship between two parties, People just think that it's a different set of rules apply when, when those are the people involved. If, if I didn't know you from Adam and I walked up to you on the street and I punched you in the face or I choked you, no one would hesitate to arrest me and prosecute me for that offense. But when that same conduct occurs within the context of a broader consensual relationship, the water gets really muddy for people to grasp exactly what took place. And so... That's the biggest hurdle there is to help people understand that acts of violence, non-consensual acts of violence can and do occur within larger consensual relationships. Um, that's a fancy way of saying, you know, some people just think that if it's, a, if it's a private affair, it's a private affair and it's nobody else's business. And that still is a mentality that some people possess even in the year 2019. And, and at its core, that's the difficulty of prosecuting these cases. That difficulty then manifests itself sometimes even in the investigation, although that has improved significantly throughout my career. Historically, even law enforcement had some of those biases. But law enforcement, I think, pretty uniformly has been trained appropriately now that, no, these are real crimes. These are real cases that need to be investigated. And they've learned to, to investigate them accordingly and prepare and, and give the prosecutors the tools they need to successfully prosecute them. Well, that's a positive change, that, that that's moving forward. And that's the key. You know, Wilson says that, that oftentimes police have been trained nowadays to collect evidence during a domestic violence call. Accurately recording what happens at the scene when you arrive, which is made easier now with body cameras and technology. Yeah. You know, what is her state of mind? Uh, what is her demeanor when she's telling you what happened? Uh, record any injuries at the time, record what the scene looked like that corroborates anything about her claim. If there were children present, and oftentimes there are, what did they see? What did they hear? Uh, what is the child's demeanor? I mean, if you arrive on the scene and, and, and the victim is beside herself in tears and the children are beside themselves in tears and horror, those are significant factors. And there was a time when that kind of stuff wasn't being documented in offense reports. It was simply, woman claims she got hit, by the husband, um, and there you go. Now, a component of that is the women themselves are, are 
a party to this whole perception as well. And, and one of the phenomena that's really, really difficult to contend with in these cases is that the women are truly trapped. And so these abusers, they can be very manipulative. Um, and sometimes the physical abuse only develops after a long period of psychological and emotional abuse. It sort of softens, softens them up for it. So what happens, a woman gets isolated from any sort of social network, and this occurs over a gradual period of time. The husband gets mad at them if they have any friends, if they spend any attention on anyone other than the husband and the home and the family, and so the woman gradually becomes isolated, quite literally, from society at large. And then, when the abuse finally erupts, the woman calls the police, the abuser goes to jail, it's very common for the abuser to manipulate the victim again by essentially saying, look, if these charges don't go away, I'm going to go to jail. It's your fault. Who's going to pay the bills? Who's going to take care of your kids? And so because of this isolation that's occurred many times for years, the woman's unemployed. She has no social network, has no family network to, to speak of. They're, they're trapped. And invariably what they may do is then they show up at the police department, the victim, the woman, shows up at the police department or at a later date at the prosecutor's office and, and completes what we call an affidavit of non-prosecution. They say, I'm going to drop the charges. This is where there's been a significant evolution in law and the approach to these cases. You know, there are many types of cases that if someone says, I want to drop the charges, the police and the prosecutors may very well say, fine. But ultimately, it's our decision as the prosecutor to, to, yeah. to, to pursue that case or not. And that's where law has really evolved to help us with that. And so, you know, the woman may come forward and say, I want to drop the charges. And we will say, that's fine. We'll evaluate the case, but the decision is ours. And what's interesting is many times the women say, that's fine by them. The mere act of completing that affidavit of non-prosecution is all they need to do to go back to their abuser and feel safe again. To say, I did what you told me. Here's the piece of paper that says, I don't want the charges to go forward. It's out of my hands now. And they're just thankful that we allowed them to complete that affidavit of non-prosecution. But the law now allows us to go forward and prosecute those cases sometimes even without their full cooperation because society has decided that those cases have, must be prosecuted even if this specific victim doesn't want them prosecuted. Yeah, it sounds like more than anything, policing all over North Texas is kind of starting to catch up with the trends. But Tarrant County is doing what they can to combat this as well. Now, the DA there is Sharon Wilson, and she took over about two years ago and realized they had a big problem with domestic violence there in Tarrant County. So she created the Intimate Partner Unit. And Elena Bangs is the chief of that unit. Over 50% of our homicides um, and capital murders in Tarrant County were intimate partner violence related, right? Either the killing of a spouse or the killing of a spouse and children. And so that's sort of what really caught her attention. She started talking with a lot of our community partners here in Tarrant County talk, um, who had, I believe at that point, had been approaching her sort of about this is something that is a concern here in Tarrant County. It's something that's an issue. It's one in three women um, are going to be victimized by, by intimate partner violence in Tarrant County. Basically, we had always had a dedicated court and team that dealt with misdemeanor family violence cases, but not really with our felony family violence cases. So what our team does is we evaluate all felony intimate partner violence cases that are filed 
And so we evaluate um, those cases because our effort was to take those cases more seriously and basically get better results on them. Um, at the time that the division was started, we hadn't, we didn't really try a lot of those cases. You know, um, we put a lot of pressure on our victims through the process, and um, basically the standard was that if somebody was arrested for family violence, it sort of became incumbent upon the victim that they could sign an affidavit of some sort and come in and take a class and say they wanted the case to go away, and the case went away, you know, either through the grand jury process or dismissal um, or something of that nature. And so we tried to turn our focus into evaluating these felony cases and figuring out how to prove them without victim cooperation, right, without putting that sort of pressure on the victim. And John Bangs tells me that this much-needed division has been a tremendous success. So um, since the beginning, um, you know, in 2016, we had 16 homicides. 17, we had 16 homicides again. In 18, we had seven. And this year, we've had six. So um, obviously, the number of homicides, which was the ultimate goal, um, has really come down. Um, so, and beyond that, we've seen a huge spike in the amount of cases like this that we're trying, um, taking to trial and getting good jury results. And so we feel like that's been very helpful in terms of, you know, working out pleas on other cases because, you know, we no longer, we no longer are giving the message that we will just pass these cases along. And as I said a bit earlier, uh, DA Patrick Wilson in Ellis County has been doing this for almost 30 years. Says because of the efforts of law enforcement and prosecutors, he's uh, seen more of these cases actually go to trial or just get prosecuted with the offender actually seeing some jail time. And he says a lot of this has to do with our general societal feelings about the domestic violence issues. It's kind of like the view towards tobacco and smoking in our society. You know, by and, by and large, most people take a dim view at, at cigarette smoking. Um, there are still plenty of people that smoke cigarettes, uh, but there was a time, maybe even just 20, certainly 30 and 40 years ago, it was widely accepted to smoke everywhere. And really, I think it's not an unfair comparison to say domestic violence is the same way. You know, 30, 40 years ago, it was not condoned by society, but it wasn't acknowledged by society. And as we've evolved, society now acknowledges it, and society now, people are more comfortable to express a dim view uh, of that and it's in society's condemnation of that behavior and that has made it easier to pull these cases along um, and that's why the investigation is so important for a woman who who may not be ultimately real cooperative down the road because the law will still allow us to present statements that she said to the police if she's emotional at the time she said them. I don't want to get into the weeds on what, yeah. on all the law of all this, but if a police officer shows up and she's screaming, oh my God, oh my God, he hit me and she's crying, if she disappears and we can't find her, that's a statement we can still use against the abuser at trial. And if you have video of that and you have pictures of all that, it still makes a very compelling picture. So you couple that improvement in investigation with the evolution of the law, with society's evolution and, and, and improved view towards these cases, they've become uh, much more successful, the prosecutions have. And while the system is getting better, this brings us back to the case of Jessica Moore, who says she's still waiting for her justice. I think that's partly why um, you do have so many women that stay with their abusers and or go back, and that they do sign affidavits for non-prosecution because they feel like nobody has their back. These men aren't held accountable for their actions, so why bother even fighting? 
the sad part about abuse is that it usually starts um, verbally, emotional, psychological, and, and ends with physical. Uh, there were several red flags. I was, uh, I was kicked out of my house multiple times, and I continued to go back. Um, the physical assault was the final straw for me uh, when I finally left and didn't go back. So it's been very disappointing that I've had to fight this hard. Um, for justice, and, and I feel like if somebody doesn't hold him accountable, he'll do it again. Now, we've talked about the issue of not reporting these types of things, and Patrick Wilson brought up one of the most important reasons why that is. These cases cross all socioeconomic borders. Sadly, the ones that are most often brought to law enforcement's attention, however, are the ones from your lower socioeconomic stratus. That is, you know, rich people tend not to report these things because they've got too much societal stake in it. They don't want the embarrassment. They don't want the shame that may come with that. And so it's a tragedy, but it's, it's a documented fact that this abuse occurs at all economic levels, but it tends to be reported more at the lower economic levels. Well, oftentimes people in lower economic strata of society, frankly, just have chaotic lives in many respects. And that chaos brings with it baggage. If the story is presented to a jury, and the story includes what is a very chaotic lifestyle of all people involved, people just, they don't get as compelled by that story. You know, these cases don't arise from Ward and June Cleaver and their happy home and their two and a half kids, and daddy drives home after work and mom's preparing dinner, and then daddy suddenly gets pissed off and smacks mom around the room. It doesn't happen that way. It oftentimes happens out of what I said are otherwise chaotic lifestyles. And that just makes it harder for people sometimes in their minds to discern the truth of the situation. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, but that's just the reality of it. And I tell people all the time, like when we, when we impanel a grand jury for, for their new six-month term, one of the statements that I and many prosecutors tell them is, look, you're going you're gonna to be exposed to an entire world of people who live by different moral, ethical, and social creeds than most law-abiding citizens. And oftentimes these, these cases of domestic violence that get reported to law enforcement include a lot of that kind of insight, and it just sort of blows people's minds that there are folks that live such chaotic lifestyles in this day and age, and it, they have a hard time separating the wheat from the chaff when, when you bring a victim. And at the end of the day, they may not perceive the victim as being very sympathetic because of the other baggage that they bring along with them. And that's unfortunate, but that goes back to the societal education of all this. People have got to be convinced, and they have been with a greater degree of, of success. People are learning to, 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 to see through that fog and realize that people are victims regardless of their station in life and that they deserve justice regardless of their station in life. And, and so that's improving. And I think you'll agree, John, that this is uh, probably the most important point in this entire podcast. And in my opinion, and I'm sure you share it, is how in the world do I help if I see signs of abuse or someone actually asks me for help to escape in a situation? Uh, Paige Flink says you have to go easy. The best thing you can do is say, I am so sorry that's happening to you. It must really be awful. How can I help you? What do you want to do? Do you want to leave? I know a place that you could go. Can I help? You just don't deserve to be treated that way. But I'm with, I'm here for you because sometimes people just want to tell someone. And then if they just want to talk about it, be ready to hear them tell you about it again. Oh, and ask the question, do you have a safety plan? 
do you know what you're going to do the next time it happens? Because they may not be able to leave at this moment. It's a dangerous time when a woman decides to leave. Very dangerous. So do you have a safety plan? Well, if, you, if they say, no, I don't, well, either educate yourself as a friend on what a safety plan looks like, but also I know a place that can, it's totally free, it's totally confidential. You can just call and talk to them. You don't even have to give them your name. You can just let them help you. Think it through. But if you want to stay, I support you. Because if we cut off our friends who don't take our advice, they're never going to talk to us again. Incredible. There is no doubt this is a huge issue, not only for North Texas, but the entire nation. And KRLD is going to be keeping an eye on how these types of cases are not only reported, but how they're prosecuted as well. And if you know anyone else that needs help or you need help yourself, you can call the Family Place at 214-941-1991. Or you can call the National Abuse Hotline. They can get you help. It's 1-800-799-SAFE. Absolutely, Austin. Thank you so much. Great work. And we invite you to subscribe to our podcast. KRLD In-Depth will be here for you every week with a new topic that we take a deep look at. For Austin York, I'm John Little for News Radio 1080 KRLD. Thanks for listening to us today. And remember, you can also always listen on the radio for breaking news, traffic, and weather. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s. And each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com.